Thank you, Tassin, for the nice introduction. So hello, everybody. Um, thank you for joining our, our session today. So for those that don't know me, Dave Hughes, I am part of the Pfizer organization and Field Medical. I want to give a brief plug quick about you know what our, what our podcast is doing and, and where we are. So Jason Spencer and I um, have started a podcast called Precept Responsibly. This was started, oh gosh, uh, a little over a year ago now. And the whole mission here was how do we make precepting approachable and, and really share best experiences. So we we launch monthly episodes in order to, to talk with experts around the country um, around certain elements of precepting to ultimately bring that experience. So again, I came from Boston Medical Center for my clinical hat and where majority of my precepting is, but I like to think of myself as an honorary preceptor um, through the fellowship program at Pfizer. So without that, I'll, I'll turn it over to my colleagues to also introduce them and then uh, shine it over to Kelly to give her introduction. So we'll start with Jen, Jen, Jason and then Spencer. Thanks for the introduction, Dave. Uh, my name is Jason Mordino. I am the Health System Director of Clinical Services at Northern Light Health. Uh, I have eight years of uh, experience as a PGY-1 Program Director, also a manager over uh, Pharmacy Education Division. Uh, Dave's right, we're about 14 months into this podcast. Uh, thanks for the intro, Dave. Spencer. Hey, Jason. Thank you so much. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Spencer Sutton. Uh, I am the Clinical Pharmacy Manager and residency director over at Mount Auburn. Uh, I am the on-staff young person uh, for Dave and Jason. I have, uh, I finished my, let's see, my PGY2 in infectious diseases uh, just about 14 months ago when this, uh, when this all kicked off. Um, so very happy to be here uh, sharing my experiences from uh, kind of like the recent grad uh, approach, I'd say. Thank you. And last but not least, I want to take some time to introduce Kelly Karlstrom, who is who's our spotlight for this uh, live episode. Hello, everybody. So nice to be here. Kelly Karlstrom. I am an oncology pharmacist by background and now the CEO of Kelly CPharmD, which is an education company that helps pharmacists learn oncology. And I like to say that CEO stands for the chief evangelist of oncology because I love talking about oncology and how we can get more pharmacists, students, and learners involved in it. I have uh, many years of clinical practice behind me, both at a large academic center and also at a sm small community center. So I've seen kind of the different, um, different aspects of precepting in those roles. And I've also worked on uh, in some non-traditional roles in the tech side of oncology, both as a consultant doing EMR implementations and also working at a couple technology startups building digital health products in oncology. So lots of different perspectives uh, from my experience. And I'm excited to chat with you all today. Thanks, Kelly. And, and just to set the stage, you know, the, the topic for today is, is, quote unquote, building a learning experience without experience. And this is not um, this is meant to really talk about, you know, how do we get experience in the precepting world without maybe going through the formalized training of of you have to do PGY1, you have to do PGY2. That's what makes you a, a preceptor. We're here to crush that myth um, and to really share about experiences of how to make it make the best experience possible for, for our learners. So I think what we're going to do is before we go into the, the discussion elements, we want um, to just gauge the audience a little bit. We're going to pop up three audience response questions. If you could all just take a second to answer those um, specifically about your profession. Uh, the first question is going to be, what is your profession? Um, second, how uh, have you served as a preceptor before going over the, the different mindsets? And then third would be... Um, for those that have served as a preceptor, about how many learners do you do you take across uh, a given year? So polling is coming in. We're seeing majority pharmacists on the call. Um, we see a handful of mixture of students, students and residents, and a good percentage that have not had experience as as a preceptor. And of those that precept, we're seeing about maybe one per year, um, and then two to five per year as the second as the second best, uh, second most prevalent option. I want to meet those people that are greater than ten per year. Yeah, yeah, I have no idea. I I, I think I did ten once in my time at BMC, and it's 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 fun. Yeah, I capped out at seven. 
All right. I think we got the majority responses are, are really starting to slow. But I think overall, what we're seeing here is a, is a vast majority of different types of, of experience. There's many of you that have never precepted about a quarter here. Um, many of you have only taken students and what that means from a resident perspective and, and how that changes. And ultimately, we're seeing just a handful of learners. If you have experience on a given year, we're not seeing the, the threshold of, of five to, to 10 plus. So with that, I'll, I'll um, let's kick off this discussion. And, and I think we're going to start with a, um, a very brief um, uh, start in what are ways audience members can overcome a fear? And, and right, we, we talked about, you know, this fear of maybe people in the past that have not had formal residency experience don't feel always that they're suitable to be preceptors. And how do we overcome that fear? And, and maybe, Kelly, I'm going to start and, and kick it off to you. What are ways that audience members can overcome the fear of starting to precept? Or maybe even, quite frankly, do they need the formal training to precept? So you don't need the formal training to precept, in my opinion. I think this, this question even stems further and that a lot of clients that I work with are feel that fear also about being an oncology pharmacist if they don't have the formal training. So what I what I like to think about and, and how I have interacted with people in my career, both as a clinician and as a business owner, is, is thinking about the fact that you don't need to be 20 steps ahead of somebody to teach them or precept somebody. You really just need to be a couple steps ahead. So if you are a practicing pharmacist in a cancer center, no matter what that cancer center is, a small community center, a large academic center, maybe you're even in a non-traditional role, you're working in managed care or something else, specialty pharmacy, you know, you already have those couple steps ahead than a student or a resident who hasn't had that, that formal professional experience. So even if you feel you have a little bit of that imposter syndrome of like, who am I to, to teach somebody else when I'm still learning, I would encourage you to think of the fact that our profession as a whole is all about continual learning, right? Especially in oncology, we know that our content, our drugs, our clinical data changes so rapidly. You always have to be learning. So there's there's not ever going to be a place where you're like, yep, I've got it all. I can teach it all. And if you are at that place, let's chat. <laughs> no, it's that that's such that that's so important, Kelly. And I, I appreciate your your perspective on on that. Um, you know, there's a, there's a question in the, in the chat, um, and I'll, 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 we'll take it right now. Um, it says the ASHP guidelines and BCOP requirements are very specific and prohibit the, the professional growth experiences of, of formal training. And I think it's getting at residency training, um, here, right. But I, I, I would argue that there's still ways to adapt to, to getting experience without being quote unquote a formalized preceptor in the residency program. I'll turn it over to my colleagues and, and get their thoughts on this. So. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Dave. I think like um, you're absolutely right that specifically with residency training, sometimes ASHP guidelines can be a hindrance. I think one of the things to keep in mind with those guidelines um, is that the there's only about 75% to 80% of preceptors that must meet that requirement in order to hit that critical factor. So there is some wiggle room that Preceptors can be junior and still growing and developing. There's still the pit status. There are still a variety of different ways for you to be involved as an educator without necessarily needing to be that formal preceptor. There's uh, split precepting. There's a variety of models that um, allow you to serve as that person without necessarily having to hit all of those ASHP checkboxes uh, right off the bat. And then I think, you know, you're absolutely right. Certainly residency is one specific thing, but there are still colleagues that need to be taught and educated. There are uh, plenty of junior colleagues that would love someone with a little bit more experience, just a tiny bit more to support them, but also students, IPIs, APIs. There are so many people out there in the professional pharmacy that need someone to just help give them that next step up. There is some place for you to start teaching. And I really think about this as like kind of the idea of, of layered learning and like, sure, maybe without a ton of experience, you're still that top layer. But even as a resident, you had so much to give to a student. And as an appy, you had so much to give to a P3. And as a P3, you had so much to give to the P2. And it, really all I'm doing at this point is... Um, <clears throat> 
summarizing in a really long format exactly what Kelly said, which is all you got to do is be a few steps ahead of the person in front of you to give them something really valuable. Um, and I think like ASHP shouldn't be a barrier to that. And I think it, it leads into the next part of the conversation where like, you know, when we took the poll, most of you had some experience more on the student side versus the resident side. And there are some nuances there, but but is there a big difference? Is there a big difference in how we we draft those learning experiences? Or is alternatively, is there a benefit of precepting students before going on to the residency? Uh, I guess I'll, I'll turn it over to, to Kelly again to, to get your thoughts here. Yeah, I think the question, I, I would say it depends on, on this one in the sense of where the student is or where the resident is in their experience, right? It could be a a vast range. You could have a student who's on their very first P4 rotation or a resident on their very last rotation, which are amazing. I love residents at the end of the year. <laughs> they can do a lot of things independently versus that very first P4 student rotate on rotation is going to need a lot more handholding. Um, so I, I'm not sure that they that there's necessarily a better way to take a student before a resident. So I think it depends on kind of where their where their baseline experience is. Like maybe a student has had some exposure during school in oncology, or maybe they've had exposure doing sterile compounding and at least have, you know, been in that environment versus when I was a student, I had never worked in a hospital. And so, you know, coming into any type of situation, any type of clin clinical area that had uh, a clean room was new experience to me. And in addition, besides the experience of student and residents, uh, it really has to do with the the learner too, right? You can have rock star students and you can have marginal residents. So it's hard to group them all together. And actually I saw on uh, the roster here as people were coming in, one of my, who's now a specialist, McKenna Smack, who was my last student in clinical practice before I left. And she knows Jason <laughs> because she did her PGY2 in Boston. So, uh, I mean, she's a great experience, a great example of a rock star student. It was a great experience for me as a preceptor to have her as my last student because she just blew everybody else out of the water. So you can have those, those different types of learners. And I, I think that's why it's hard to say, you know, definitely do students before residents or vice versa. Uh, shout out to McKenna, one of the best chief residents we've ever had uh, and a great PGY2 oncology resident. But um, yeah, I think Kelly like hit the nail on the head. Like if you think about it in specific people, I don't think there's any difference between students and residents and in, in um, taking one first over the other. I think you could certainly come up with some generalities and try to like fit one box into the other. But uh, I, I think if you're talking like, tailoring your experience to the person in front of you, then, um, you know, educating a student or a resident should be very similar. I agree, Kelly. Yeah, I almost think it's just like, you know, oh, um, just like how to provide value, right? Like every rotation and every learning experience is going to have a, may have a different level of value. And, and, you know, I think all of us can speak from our experience that when you have a given learner on rotation, regardless of where they're coming from, they're, they might have a different set of objectives that they want to accomplish by the end of your experience. And I think importantly, as, as you start to think about developing a rotation, it's really what is the most valuable element that you can offer and, and really develop and, and mold that for your learners. I, I mean, absolutely echo everything that's already been said. Um, I did, you know, um, through my training, I did have surprisingly more experienced precepting residents or and um, appy students than uh, kind of the younger students. Um, I think what I noted to be the main difference is on one hand, I felt that I had more flexibility with the residents uh, compared to the appies as well as the IPBE students, um, where often there were, you know, school of pharmacy opinions on what had to be done, opposed to the residency where I felt that um, there was a little bit more flexibility. Additionally, um, in my experience, at least I found with the residents, I might maybe felt a little bit co more comfortable trusting their independent practice. So, of course, having that safety net in place to make sure that, you know, optimal care was being provided. Um, but as I found that I was working with younger and younger um, students, I found almost more responsibility to be available for them at every time, uh, especially with the um, early Abbey students kind of thinking about July and August, where this might be their first learning experience. They've never, like you said, Kelly, they might not have ever stepped into a pharmacy or a hospital with a, you know, with a clean room. 
And there were some things in my clinical practice where it wouldn't be fair to say, all right, we are, I'm an ID pharmacist. We're going on stewardship rounds, you know, go work up your ID patient. Uh, I want them to see my process. I want them to see how I go through Epic, how I work up a patient. Um, and there's no requirement or expectation. And not to say that one is easier to the other, but maybe I feel that the earlier students might require a little bit more of that time commitment, uh, where the residents, I might feel that, you know, maybe it is two to three hours a day tops I'm spending with them, but we still had a very productive learning experience. You found those generalities. Thank you, buddy. Kelly, I have a question for you. Um, as you think about like your experience and how you've grown and developed over time, um, and, and particularly maybe for those that feel under-experienced, how do you start thinking about tailoring your rotation to the skills that you have? And then as those skills change, continuing to tailor that experience? Yeah, um, I think first you really have to do a, a good self-assessment of what those skills are, because I think we intuitively like to downplay what what skills are good enough. You know, we have this kind of level of, whoa, they need to be at this certain level before I could actually, you know, share those skills. And I would encourage you to share them before you're ready, because the skills are probably just fine. Um, and, and really, when you're tailoring an experience, uh, thinking about definitely taking into account, you know, what the, what are the goals of the learner? And you can do that in a couple different ways. You know, some of it may be prescripted from the school of pharmacy, um, from your residency uh, um, requirements, but I would encourage some sort of intake process, especially with students, because, you know, sometimes people choose oncology and sometimes they get pushed into oncology, which makes a completely different experience. Um, but I will say that when I was in practice, it always, uh, my goal when I got one of those students who their goal was to just get through this rotation, they didn't really care if they learned that much oncology, they didn't expect to be in oncology. And I made it my mission to make them love oncology at the end of it. And that involves that's, you know, my personality, but that also involves like sharing my personal stories, it helped them see how oncology is woven into all of healthcare, how they are absolutely going to see patients with cancer, whether they think they are or not. If you're in a retail pharmacy, you definitely are seeing patients with cancer. So I, I think there's, you know, opportunity to create and draft the, the experience based on what the learner wants to get out of it, what your skills are, but also what you want to get out of it. Maybe what skills do you want to improve on? Do you want to practice on? If you are, you know, you really want to spend more time kind of getting a, a better understanding of clinical trials. Um, you know, focus maybe on extra journal clubs with that student, have the student lead that process. And that's going to force you to read that article and, you know, be able to give the student some insight. You don't have to be an expert on stats to do journal clubs. I'm certainly not an expert in stats, but, you know, having those discussions and having that opportunity to teach and, and learn from both the students, uh, teach the student and learn from the student, I think can improve your skills. And that's going to make the process of precepting even more enjoyable as the uh, critical care pharmacist on this uh, thing i'm gonna say i'm really glad i didn't take your rotation kelly because i might have ended up in oncology and with that i think we've started to touch on or maybe use some of these uh maybe some of the buzzwords but taking it from the start what are the basics to starting like a brand new rotation if you are a preceptor that's about to take your first student resident fellow whatever that might be where do you start um well i'll take a stab at that but then maybe i'll leave it to jason who's like currently something. Um, yeah, I think especially if you're, so think about it in two buckets, like have you, um, is this a, you've taken students before or learners before and you have experience and, and, um, documentation that you can use, or you are a brand new site and you are starting from scratch. And if you're starting from scratch, I would encourage you not to start from scratch and find some colleagues to share the wealth. We are really good in pharmacy about reinventing the wheel not really sure why we just, we have, it's like ingrained in us that we have to make everything from scratch, these new documents, these new slide decks, like, no, plenty of people have this stuff. Uh, find a colleague. That's another good plug for why networking is so important. Uh, find another pharmacist who's taken students or residents. It doesn't even have to be in your, um, in your particular specialty. So I could reach out, um, 
to any of my other colleagues, Jason in ICU, Spencer in ID, and say, hey, just share with me your learning description, and then I can adapt it from there, uh, from the oncology components. So I think that uh, from the learning description, certainly also think about that onboarding process. How are you going to prep this learner before they come to you? Because I mean, it's really challenging when they show up on a busy Monday morning and they have no, no idea what they're doing. They probably don't have access to the EMR yet. So they're just sitting there staring at you, <laughs> you know, have have some, some uh, processes in place to get them to do a self-assessment ahead of time, have some things for them to do at the beginning. Yeah, I think Kelly hit it like the nail on the head, right? Like start with learning description and totally agree, Kelly. Like no need to start over. Uh, and like circling back to what Kelly said at the beginning, you have to know what your skills are before you start. You have to know what's my organization good at? What am I good at? And what am I going to lean into teaching? So that when you're asking the student to, you know, maybe do an in-service or a project, like if your site can't handle projects, maybe don't build that into your learning description. If your site doesn't have the ability to counsel patients, don't make it a requirement of your like experience. Or maybe like you've only counseled two or three patients and you're like, oh, I kind of want to stretch myself. Like, well, maybe you build it in and that's a way to help stretch yourself, gain some experience with your student. But you have to like be honest with yourself up front about what you can and can't do, what your org can and can't do and how that fits into your workflow to build that learning description. Um, having written a few of them, I have some ideas, but I'm curious, like Dave Spencer, Kelly, how do you guys prevent wasting hours writing this learning description and tailoring it to exactly what you do after you've kind of stolen from someone else? Like, how do you keep it updated? Yeah, I mean, I can, I can speak from my experience in the past and in, in the oncology world. It was, you know, I always looked at this as a, at a syllabus as like a live document, right? Like every year you need to update them per, per different, you know, whether it's a school of pharmacy that wants an updated syllabus, whether it's ASHP that requires an updated syllabus. But if you, if you treat it as a live document and you constantly ask yourself, okay, how do I refine this better and get feedback from students to continuously refine it and treat it as that live document, I think that's one easy way to constantly refine it and build up the experience. You're going to find things, especially early on. I mean, as a when I was a new preceptor, there were so many things that didn't work, but it was a matter of taking what didn't work, figuring out like figuring out how to fix it and then implementing it. I think that's the one area people hear is they get feedback, but they don't implement it by way of syllabus. And by implementing it and doing that, I think you can constantly refine a syllabus a, a little bit better. I think oh. it's also, sorry, Jay, go for it. I was just going to punctuate that like, I might be out on a limb here, but if I find a new reading or I change an expectation and like I say, this is how I want an in-service done, I'll tell the student, can you go update the syllabus with this new reading that we just talked about? Like, can you do some of the small administrative things that like need to be done for this? And like, it may feel a little icky, but at the same time, like they're learning how to in real time update what you're teaching. And, and that in and of itself is a skill. And if, and if you're starting from scratch, I mean, I've implemented a, a pro, like when I implemented one new rotation at, at Boston Medical Center, I use it as a as an experience for my PGY2 to say, okay, can we work on this and write it together and give them the initial foundation? One, I'm not I'm not lazy and just trying to 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 show my to get out of this, but I do think, you know, going forward as a new preceptor, that next year they're going to be in the same position as a preceptor trying to develop things on their own. So I think it is a really good experience to have residents be or resident students build these learning experiences. I think even after, you know, if you don't, even if you don't have that formal, you know, background, uh, learning how to be a preceptor or whatever we want to call it, uh, it's okay to accept that maybe your first learning experience that you provide isn't going to be the best one. You know, this is a process of continual improvement. Um, I absolutely stole everything for, for my first learning experience. I reached out to Jason. I reached out to Dave. I reached out. We have excellent preceptors here, uh, faculty at some of the uh, universities in the area. And I sat in for her the first orientation one of them did, just really trying to take from them. And learning with my first student, I let them know this is you are my first Appy student I've ever had. Uh, let me know how things go. Um, but what I use that first rotation for was just jotting down things that I wish I had included earlier. Um, having them do a topic discussion and saying like, 
why don't I have a list of the top discussions we're going to be going through? And really, by the end of that first rotation, I was able to take those notes. And then I went in and said, all right, I am now going to really develop my learning description and start to take that ID focused stuff and implement it into what was a critical care based learning experience that I stole everything from. And, you know, with time, things get better. Before Dave pivots to the next piece on this, if it has not been clear to the audience between comments about it's not perfect up front or we need to be like feel confident to steal things or like we need to feel confident to like experiment and grow. The the idea here is that um, pharmacists many times are our own worst enemies. We expect perfection right off the bat. And this entire CE is about helping you understand that one nothing is ever perfect. And two, sometimes you just got to start. So if we haven't hit that point home, I want to make that point really clear because Spencer just mentioned it twice in that statement. Like, just start. It's okay. It will get better. We all had a bad day, a bad rotation, a bad year, but it got better. I completely agree with that. Just start. That is that is my motto for sure. Um, one other thing I'll add to, to, to consider kind of a tactical piece is when you are done writing your description, consider recording a video of yourself talking about the rotation. Because I remember as a student reading learning descriptions and saying like, oh yeah, this has been around for decades. I don't know what this means. I don't know what I'm going to get out of this rotation. I don't know if my preceptor is really all that interested in teaching me. And what I do a lot in my business is I record a lot of just like one-off videos for clients or speakers or a lot of different people. And it makes all the difference because they see the human behind the video. So they'll be able to see the preceptor and, and they'll be able to see your passion about whatever it is that they're going to experience on the rotation. And that's a great way to start off. I love that idea, Kelly. Yeah, I think the the one other thing I think we I wanted to hit on in in this early developing experiences is how do you set expectations for learners? You know, are there different are there different strategies to set unique expectations with the learner to get the best possible outcome? Um, and how how do we how do you do that early on in a rotation? Honestly, I set them down. Uh, and we generally go through my syllabus or whatever version of a syllabus I'm using. Uh, you know, in, in most cases, it's uh, I know, Dave and Spencer, you've been exposed to Asana. I use a task management software to literally guide me through the conversation of like, this is my expectation for this. And you're going to complete this and I'm going to assign this task to you and there's instructions in it. And so, um, you know, I, I think for me, one of those things is having um, something that's a little bit uh, interactive is helpful. And there are lots of different interactive softwares that you can use. It does not just have to be Asana, but that's one of the things that I've found really helpful because it, it serves as a syllabus and outline a guide but it also guides and triggers me. It also fits into my workflow and it's interactive for the student or the resident to be able to see, oh, I did that in service. I checked it off and I moved on. Oh, I did that reading. I checked it off and I moved on. Um, but also a place to go back and be like, I know Jason told me to do this thing, but I don't remember what he said. Where do I find the info? And it's right in there in the task that they're already assigned. So that's one of the ways that I found it really helpful, but I'd be curious what others do. One of the things that I like to do is I have a, I block 30 minutes on Monday and 30 minutes on Friday to set expectations. Uh, I'm a believer in, you know, frequent feedback day-to-day. Uh, -day, if you don't hear from me, yeah, sure, it's a good thing. Um, but I want to say on the first day with someone, my goal for this week is for us to achieve these objectives. And sometimes in early rotations, as an example, like uh, first resident rotation, I say, my goal for this week is to you to you for you to be on rounds with me and start finding the opportunities of like, here's the point where it's appropriate for me to make my intervention. And then on Friday, we will, you know, debrief that and see how it went and see how we can adjust. And then I say, my goal next week is let's get our patient census on who you're monitoring up. Um, I think that creates these very clear lines of communication. It also allows me to track progress, which in my opinion, um, it makes writing the evaluation very easy too, because I've already started having that documentation really over the whole five to six week learning experience. I love that you use Asana, Jason. I use Notion, so I'm equally all over task management stuff. Um, 
I think too, using your calendar, uh, you know, if, if this is kind of in your wheelhouse or if this is beneficial to you, I live and die by my calendar. And so if somebody says like, Hey, we're going to accomplish this by the end of this week, or this task is due at this time, or this project is due at this time, I can look ahead and see that it's coming. So good for the learner, but also for you as a preceptor, you know, our day-to-day work gets crazy, like in an instant. (laughs) So having those times already built into your calendar to touch base with your learner, whether it's a formal meeting or not, you know, it's easier to cancel a meeting than it is to add one on uh, after you're already halfway through the week. So I think that can help set some expectations too when they can see it on their calendar. That's a great uh, idea. I think one of the things that we've done a good job of is really thinking about the administrative ways of modifying and managing our uh, rotation. How do you get that information out of your learner so that you know that like what you're doing is working, what you're not doing is working? How do you do it for yourself too? That's a great question. (laughs) Self-assessment, I think, is a skill we all need to get better at. Um, and really help from the preceptor perspective, I think prompting and probing the learner when they do a self-assessment that isn't deep enough to keep going, you know, asking them why, you know, I think that that comes up a lot with like clinical recommendations. So when a learner says, oh, I'm going to make this recommendation and you say why, and they give you an answer and you say why, and they give another answer, you know, trying to dig down deeper to see how much what's the depth of that information? I think that's true with self-assessments too, and really be able to dig into where their gaps are. I think as as humans and as professionals, probably particularly students too, as they're like getting close to graduation, it's scary to figure out like, man, I don't know very much at all. I'm really nervous about this, or I'm not very good at this. I feel like I should be good at this at the end of, at the end of pharmacy school. Uh, This isn't going to bode well for my career. You know, we can get up in our head a lot about those things, but self-assessment is not judgment. It's to assess and then create a plan of action from there. Thanks. Thanks, Kelly, for that. And I see a really interesting point in the chat that was brought up by uh, actually one of my old preceptors and still one mentor is Laura. Um, how do you handle co-precepting learners and ensuring that they have the they meet goals and there's consistency as they interact with different preceptors on a rotation. So I think this question is getting at where you have multiple preceptors on a learning experience, how you can make sure that it's consistent across the learning experience so that there's not different expectations being set by different preceptors. Anyone want to try to tackle that one? As there's a truck going out uh, by outside, and I'm sure you can all hear that. You're actually silent right now. I, I can take a swing. Um, I think it's beneficial to have one person function as a primary preceptor. Uh, usually the person that's going to have the most shifts with them, but at least having one source of truth where feedback comes from and they can act as a, a filter for that information. Um, I also, when we do um, like multiple preceptors on a rotation, I'm a big believer in the warm handoff, uh, you know, week to week, having a quick 15 minute touch base on the progress that people are making um, just to see what are like, can we agree on what the objectives for next week are and what are we going to work uh, together towards um, calendars are really helpful having that rotation calendar so everyone knows where they're going to be um, formalizing some of that structure, I think is really what I'm getting at. Yeah. Spot on Spence on like all the admin, like communication handoff things. I, I think it's really hard. I'm going to be honest. It's really hard because you really like upfront, you have to make sure your expectations are similar for the both of you. If you know, like I know I can walk into a room and like Dave and I are going to have the same hard level expectations, but I know there are other preceptors on my team that are going to have very different expectations than me. And like, it's because I've known them over eight, 10 years of working with them. But like, if I just need a preceptor and I'm like paired with them to precept, like it's really hard unless you one, know up front, two, have really clear communication and then three, document it as you go. I'm going to throw in my last little admin piece here. It's also why I use Asana for this. I assign every one routine feedback to drop into Asana so that I can give it to the learner. Um, but, uh, you know, whatever your task management software is, like for me, that just happens to be the thing. It's my easiest form of communication and task management, but it's routinely getting information back from the person you're co-precepting with, but really setting that strong foundation, I think is probably key to the success of the experience long-term. 
Great points. And I'm just going to echo everything. It's, it's challenging. And that's, that's the the crux of the message here is it, it's tough to do. I, I want to take a, um, a stab uh, forward and talk about our last and final topic. And ultimately one of the most important is how to make the experience enjoyable, right? How do you, how do you build and make this experience a positive one that that the student, the learner, the resident can look back on? So I guess my first question in this is how to build a relationship with the learner to not make it come across as too personal from a preceptor learner experience, but also not so professional that the the learner feels suffocated. So so curious to know your strategies on on creating that right relationship with your learner to make it a, a good learning environment. And maybe I'll start with uh, Kelly. And if and if you want, feel free to to chime in the chat too, and and feel free to dive in of what strategies you all find most effective, and we can certainly highlight some of those experiences as a group. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I think um, you know something too that helps build relationships is shared interests. So looking for the components in the learner that really excite them. You know, if oncology isn't their jam, I'll try not to hold it against them. <laughs> but, you know, find out again, find those little nuggets. Like, what do they really love? Maybe they love patient counseling. They just don't want to talk to patients about chemo. Okay. You know, you can work with that. Um, maybe they really like the project managing management component. Maybe they really like the policy development component. Like all of those things can fit into your rotation. So the more you can tease out what it is that they're interested in and, and create those common bonds, um, I think it's helpful. I think also, um, you know, talking about your professional pathway, uh, kind of what experiences you've had, how you've maintained relationships um, in your professional path, you know, just like this conversation alone, you know, you know, Dave and I know each other, Jason and I know it. Jason was a PGY one at my center the year after me, we both have McKenna smack in common. Like, I mean, we, it's a very small world. So teasing out kind of where those, um, where those lines of connection go. And similarly, you know, figuring out, well, what are their future interests and seeing if you can connect them with somebody in your network that can help foster those relationships. I love I, that. And I, go ahead, Jason. No, you go, buddy. I was just gonna say, I love that. And I also love the comment that came in the chat. Um, of, of inviting inviting them on LinkedIn and introducing them to thought leaders with posts that they can discuss. And I think Kelly, Kelly embarrassingly, has really revolutionized my mindset of LinkedIn and, and shows the, the bandwidth of, of education through that platform, <laughs> but not on Facebook. I love the jokes. <laughs> yeah, no Facebook or Instagram, please. I, I, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I like struggle with this is like the being a little too um, either like personable or being too professional. It's like, it's a really hard balancing act. And it may be something where you need to like acknowledge like, oh, I have been a little too personable and like, maybe we need a little reset or like when you've gone too far on the, like, you need to do this and this and this, and you're like, Mr. Manager, Jason, like, it's time to like step back and be like, okay, maybe we need to schedule a meeting where we don't talk about just your learning today. Maybe it's, we talk about you and we talk about me and we get to know each other a little bit. And, and I think it's probably more natural for most people to come in a little bit more professional and then over time start to build in that stuff. And I think it's more natural with like residents and other staff and maybe something you need to force a little bit with students, but kind of one way to maybe backdoor your way into that kind of more natural relationship. I do want to just bring one that's in the chat as well that I really like. Uh, the pre-assessment questionnaires uh, help reviewing day one of rotation with them so that you can tailor some of their interests and expectations. I think tailoring the expectations is and really the learning experience in general is a great opportunity. Uh, I think the learners uh, receive that as really your devoted interest in precepting and really figuring out how I can make this work best for you. Um, I do do something similar. I also have a section where they can tell me about some of their non-professional interests. Um, it just to help me understand them more as a person, um, we'll go through that whole paper together on the first day. And I'll share with them some of my interests as well, um, trying to professionally, but maybe break down some of that formality of I'm the preceptor, you are the learner, you know, like where people, and we've said it so many times, but I am learning from the student or the learner at the same time that they're learning from me. I think one other piece I'll add here to, to just transition, 
um, is also thinking about ways to to tailor as we as we keep coming back to this theme about tailoring rotations, right? It's always about, you know, finding the right balance, right? We all know like precepting is usually an extracurricular and there's not a given amount of time allocated to to you all to say you have X hours a day to precept and only X hours a day to do your your day-to-day job. We know that, you know, precepting usually is an added load and and really I think part of the strategy in gaining experience is lear- using learners as extenders and, and giving them projects and value that they can get a valuable experience. I know in my past life as a as a specialist, one of the things I constantly did was ask the student, what are your goals for the next year? What are ways you can I, I can help you grow in an oncology experience? If it's maybe it's more on on the fellowship side and we we focus on drug information questions. Maybe it's a utilization side and we give them an MUE to to think about big picture. And ultimately, these are tangible things that can be presented at national conferences. And these projects can turn into bigger pictures that ultimately make them stand out um, and give them a tangible benefit at the end of your learning experience. Um, I'm curious to know the others on the on the panel here. Are there ways that you can help balance this, um, you know, demand with with not over overworking and, and overwhelming the, the system? This is a tough one. I mean, we always have so many, so many pulls on our time. Uh, definitely trying to figure out, you know, as an extender, yes. And that's sometimes not super easy to put into practice. So think about what, what is some tangible outcome that you need to get done? And it might need to be one the first step of that outcome that you need, you know, depending on how long the rotation is or how skilled the learner is, you know, it doesn't have to be that this whole QA project is done or this whole data collection is done. Maybe it's they're just designing the data collection sheet and that's all that you can get through. Um, So really breaking breaking tasks down into smaller components and having it be not just smaller components for you, but giving them a tangible win. You know, there's nothing worse than just pulling a bunch of data and never knowing what came from it. The learner, it's not a great experience for the learner. Um, so having some outcome that they can feel like that was a win, the work that they put into it. Um, anybody can answer this. I, I'm really curious uh, because I, I know what my answer is and I'll share it at the end. But um, how did you finally give up the fear of feeling like I am the expert being the person who is the expert and knows all the answers? How did you finally shift to learning with your learners? I think, I mean, for, for me personally, it's just being vulnerable. Um, you know, I've had several conversations, you know, I, I'm, I like to think it's biased, but it's true in any disease state and oncology, the field just changes way too quick. And it's, it's impossible to know every single answer. You're going to get students that you don't know the end that you don't know the answer to, and you don't have to make it up or, or figure out some excuse of how to get out of that question. Simply, I, I think, you know, just sitting with the student and showing them your thought process of how you get to the answer is an extremely valuable experience and arguably is be- a better better use of that than just t- saying, oh, we don't know, go look it up, we'll talk about it tomorrow. You know, I know that t- typically is like the, the gut response when we don't know something, and I'm guilty of doing that very early on, but as I found myself to be more vulnerable and say, I don't know the answer that created a better learning environment and a better dialogue between myself and my learners. I can't echo you enough, Dave. I think that like, there's no way to know everything in all of our respective professions. Uh, the the main strength that I think pharmacists share is the ability to find that information. And so what we're showing there really is that learning experience. So not only are you maybe doing a disservice of like, oh, go look it up and we'll discuss tomorrow and you buy yourself time to keep good face, but you're taking away that learning experience of, I don't know that answer, like, let's look into that. And you can show them your process of pulling that information. Um, To Jason, answer your direct question where that fear fell away from me from, it was, I had a preceptor do just that for me. We had some therapeutic drug monitoring of an antifungal and, you know, we were, we were sitting there together and it was the first time I was genuinely asked, like, what would my opinion be and what's my approach? And we went into the literature together and we were pulling things and we were having this like professional debate back and forth. And I had this like, oh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a 
I'm a professional, like I'm a clinician. I, I have maybe opinions that matter here. <laughs> and and that was really cool as a learner. And I and I remember that moment. I remember those conversations. And every time I have a student and we come across something I don't know, I'm like, let's look into that. Let's do that right now. And if we can't do it right now, like I'll put 30 minutes on your calendar. Let's revisit this and like find a good answer together. Mm, I love it. Showing people that you don't know the answer is really important. Because especially in oncology, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I hear from people that, and even there's a, a comment in the in the chat here that someone mentioned they still have anxiety about being the expert. And it's funny because I, I hire a lot of expert oncology pharmacists to help me in my program because I'm not an expert in every cancer. And honestly, I don't want to be an expert in every cancer. It's a lot of cancers. So I go out and find the smarter people than me and have them help me with my program. And it's funny the the amount of times that I'll reach out to them and say I'm looking for an expert in sarcoma. And they'll and they'll say, "I'm not sure I'm an expert in sarcoma." I'm like, "You absolutely qualify. You've been doing it for 4 years." <laughs> so I think all of us kind of have that a little bit of that imposter syndrome of the, of the word expert. I think uh can scare some people, but when you ask people that have been in practice for many years like when they started to feel that comfort level to Jason's point about like when that fear fell away, it's honestly years. I did a LinkedIn poll a while ago in oncology pharmacy and they, most people said four plus years. Yeah, I am. Um, so I, I wanted to share quickly, like very quickly that like mine didn't fall away until I was pushed to have it fall away. I ran out of time to like, feel like I could gain my own experience. And then um, I pivoted from a primary uh, clinical job to a primary management job. And I went from having a ton of experience feeling super like, like, like an expert to feeling like I knew nothing about how to manage people and how to make changes. And, and like, I had some project management, but that was it. And so um, I wasn't given a choice. It was, these are your students in management because these were your students before, and you're just going to keep taking them. And um, I just had to figure it out. And honestly, I wish I had listened to the people before me that said like, you just got to do it. And I tried to push them off, but you know, I, I, you just got to step out there and try it. So for me, that was the big way. Um, I, I think we want to quickly take a few questions. I saw one in the chat uh, that I that spoke to me uh, as as like someone who did some order verification. Um, someone asked, "Do you find order entry to be meaningful? Essentially, as like a way to uh, educate your your students or your residents?" And, and I think certainly for like early residents, absolutely. Like they don't understand how to do order verification because no one's done it with them as a student. And I don't think it's a bad thing to sit a student down and spend some time teaching them about what order entry and order verification looks like so that they can start to understand how do I create a standardized process for looking at a med order so that they have at least a gist of where to start as a resident? I think a lot of times we shy away from it because it feels like part of doing the job. And like it is, but so is a med rec. So is counseling a patient. So is going to multidisciplinary rounds. And, and I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to teach someone. Do I think it's the only thing we should teach? No, but um, definitely should be in there. I think one of my 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 first and best mentors at Boston Medical Center, Jason Mordino, told me a wise quote once. It's always about the why that you give a student the experience, right? It's like if you say to a student, do this task without any context, it immediately feels to, to a mindset operational and transactional versus if you give them context of like, here's the importance of the project, here's the mindset, here's how it affects oncology, here's how it affects the clinical aspect of care. There's there's a complete mind change that happens with students. And I can't emphasize that enough is, is right, especially when it comes to something like, you know, order entry. It's like, why are you teaching them that? And I think if you spend the time, like Jason mentioned, and, and spend that time with them, educating them on the why, it becomes a completely different conversation. Um, Kelly, I'm gonna I'm gonna come I'm gonna come point at you first. Any uh, final takeaways you'd like for to leave this audience? Final takeaways. Uh, I mean, it's always great to keep in the forefront of your mind the fact that you sh most of us should not feel comfortable, like completely comfortable in our day to day work, because oncology is just constantly moving and new drug. I mean, just 
a couple weeks ago, right? Dave, we had several myeloma drugs approved, like back to back. And I think when you are, when you're comfortable, that's when you miss out on opportunities to expand your skills and expand your knowledge in other areas. So I would say lean in to the discomfort. Keep doing this. Uh, you know, we like joke around, we created this podcast is like sitting around having a discussion about preceptor development, but like meet with people at your shop, meet with people outside your shop. When you go to mid-year, talk to people about like, what are you doing? How are you doing it? How is it different than what I'm doing? Like a lot of learning how to educate and, and network, et cetera, is mostly doing it and learning from others, trying and trying it again. And so like, sit down, talk to people. You may learn a bunch of new things that you'd never thought of, like task management software. He's still trying to get the world to go onto Asana. I want any final takeaways for the group. For me, it's been said before, but just get started. Uh, the fact that you are all here listening to a conversation on precepting, it, it means you're a good preceptor. You're devoted to learning how to do it. Um, so get started, start from scratch, borrow from other people, um, and you'll continually learn and develop your own process. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to echo everything. Um, again, reach out to people, make connections. Um, it's been joked around, but like LinkedIn is a great place to just get to know people, be part of discussion, learn from one another. I think like that's how you get better. Um, overall, it's just learning from one another. With that, I will um, I will end and, and pass the baton back to Tussin and the Encoda team. I, I wanted to thank everyone for giving us the time. Thank you to the Encoda staff and thank you, Kelly Carlstrom, for being uh, a guest on, on our uh, live episode here. Hope you all enjoyed today's episode. We thank you for listening. Uh, I just want to remind people, if you have an idea for an episode or you want to drop an audio comment or question, uh, you know, record yourself 30 seconds uh, on your phone. Send it to us uh, at preceptresponsibly at gmail.com. We also are on social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Find all of our episodes on your favorite podcast providers. We also have these as videos on YouTube. Today's episode was produced by Spencer Sutton. Music by Alex Grohl. That's it for Precept Responsibly. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm Dave Hughes. Until next time, thanks all for listening.